Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, everyone. My name is Lily. an alcoholic all the way from Abastool in Wyndham, Maine. Come here to Nashville, and I'm more amazed than all of you that... Uh, I get to do this. It's absolutely, absolutely amazes me. Um, it's not what I aspired to be. Um, and before I forget, I want to thank the committee for asking me to come down here and share with you my story. And uh, I want to thank Paula and her husband, David, for taking me around and showing me the site yesterday. And uh, also, I met some friends. You know, I, I was in the um, restaurant yesterday morning to have breakfast, and I was going to sit by myself, and all of a sudden I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just going to ask somebody if I can sit with them. And, and I asked this couple if I could sit with them, and lo and behold, he said, I met you in Texas. <laughs> I said, so go figure, you know, you think you're just picking a stranger, and I picked somebody that already knew me, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, your theme is a vision for you, and when I get done telling my story, you'll know that I had a vision. Um <clears throat> may have been a little warped and a little, you know, they tell me I have a disease of perception. You know, there's a friend of mine back home in Maine, and she always says, whenever she speaks, she gets up and she says, Lily has a disease of perception. What somebody else says by the time it gets to Lily's ears is something entirely different than what was spoken. And that's the truth. That's what happens to me, you know. Um, and I do want to take a minute and just thank the committee for putting this roundup together. You know, I know how hard it is to get one of these things off the road because I've been on the roundup committee in my home uh, state for nine years, and there's a lot of work that goes into this. So let's take a moment and give them all a big hand. Thank you. So let me tell you about me. It's my favorite subject. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. And uh, let me just start out by telling you what happened to me before I drank alcohol. Because I'm in Tennessee, and I have been waiting for a long time to be down here where you guys will understand what I'm talking about. See, when I graduated from high school, if the date that you had was not from the same graduating class, they couldn't go to the banquet. And so... My date was not from my school, and so his parents, whom I thought were rich, and they weren't, but I thought they were, and uh, they were going to take us out to dinner to a place called the Portlander. And it was a very, very fancy hotel at the time, and, and my parents really struggled to buy me this beautiful dress, and it had a big hoop skirt. You girls, you southern girls, you know about them hoop skirts, don't you? Well, us northern girls don't know much about no hoop skirts, and I didn't know anything about them. But it looked pretty. I looked pretty, you know. This dress just had this big skirt, and I had white spike-high heels, and boy, I was good to go, you know. And we went to this restaurant, and his dad said, you can have anything you want. And they brought these menus, and they were like this big, and they had tassels hanging off of them, and I'd never been in a restaurant like that. You know, I was brought up in a home. I have four brothers, and uh, I'm the only girl. We're at smack in the middle, and a mom and a dad, and both of my grandmothers lived with me as a little girl, and 
Nobody in my house was getting drunk or getting beat up or getting hit on the head with frying pans and none of that stuff going on in my house. But um, I didn't know I was poor until I was, you know, a lot older than I, you know, I just didn't know as a child that we were poor. We had a lot of love in that house. And, but anyway, we went to this Portlander and they bring out this beautiful menu. And I opened the menu and they had things in there I never heard of. But his dad said I could have anything I wanted. So I ordered the Philip Mignon. And the girl said to me, how would you like it? And I said, cooked. You know, <clears throat> and they brought that dish to me. And I'd never seen a Philip Mignon before. And it didn't really look like anything special to me either, to be honest with you. But I went to cut it. And when I did, it slid off the plate onto the floor. And I did not want his parents to think that I didn't have any cooth. So I kicked it under the table. And when his dad looked up, I said, I was awfully hungry. <laughs> and we finished our meal and we got ready to leave. And as I stood up, I realized that I had skewered that steak with the heel of my shoe. <laughs> that hoop came in handy. Because I kind of walked out of there like Groucho Marx trying to cover it up, you know. And it was six months later before I added alcohol, you know. So that's going to tell you how it started for me. Six months later, I married that man, and I had, again, a hoop, you know, a big hoop. And, you know, made a fool of myself right off the bat in the church, walked in, walked down the aisle, sat down on that hoop, the whole front of the dress goes up, you know. Those dresses sure are pretty, but man, you got to really have an education to know how to work one of them. I had never had a drink of alcohol. I didn't know much about alcohol. And the only thing I knew about alcohol is what i seen on TV, you know. And so after the wedding, we went into this place called the VFW, which later became the Sahara Club. Um, <clears throat> years later, it became the Sahara Club. And, and what happened for me was my dad said, what are you going to have, honey? And I said, I don't know. What are you having? And and he was going to have a whiskey and ginger. And I thought, well, good for him, good for me, you know. And so he ordered both of us a whiskey and ginger, and he said, here's to you. And what I knew about drinking, I'd seen on TV. If anybody said, here's to you, you downed it, you know. And the next thing I remember is taking that dress off on the front lawn of the place, you know. And that's the way it was going to be for me. When I drank, I, my clothing would fall off. I didn't understand that, you know. My clothes would fall off. And things began to happen right away, you know. Um... I didn't know that the man that I married was an alcoholic. I had no idea, you know. And uh, who was it here that had all the kids? She had all the kids, right. So I didn't know. I thought, you know, that when I got married, it was going to be just like my mom and dad, you know. We were going to get married, and we could do what we wanted to do, and he would go to work, and he would come home at 4 o'clock, and it would be wonderful, and I would have dinner ready just like my mom did, and, you know, the house would be nice, and we'd have children, and it would be wonderful, you know, and, what happened is we had four children in seven years, and he was a drunk, and he couldn't come home. I didn't know that then, you know. I just remember that we'd fight about his drinking, and then whenever he'd quit drinking, we'd want to go somewhere, and I'd think, well, he's the one with the drinking problem. I can drink. I didn't know that that was a sign. I had no idea, you know, and we lost a child to SIDS, and uh, they went to find him that day, and... And he wasn't at work. He was in a bar room, you know. And and I really believe today that he had no defense against drinking, you know. He didn't know. And uh, 
And after we lost that baby, he was never right again after that, you know, and he couldn't have stopped if he wanted to. But I didn't know that then, you know. And we had two more children, and uh, and that marriage was going nowhere. I mean, when I found him stealing the milk money from the kids, you know, stealing the money that, that I had put aside to buy the kitten milk for the children, then I decided I needed to get out of that marriage, you know, and so I divorced him. And, uh, Jesus, then I started drinking, you know. But I wasn't like him. I mean, I would just go somewhere and have a couple of drinks, get in a fight with somebody, or take my clothes off, and then I'd go home, you know. And they used to say about me that I was a neat drunk, you know. I used to puke just in this little pile and then whoop, move right on and go to the next thing, you know. And I had no idea that that was the beginning stages of alcoholism, you know, and that I was doing that now every single weekend. I was, you know, I'd get somebody to watch those children, and I'd go off and dance and have a great time and can you believe I was a go-go dancer? Yes, I was. I've been a lot of things in my life, all due to, you know, drinking alcohol. I was drunk one night, and they said they need a go-go dancer. I said, I can do that. And they said, we have to have a costume. I said, I'll make one. You know, and I grabbed the curtains off the window and made myself a little pair of pants and a little shirt. And I was all set to get up in that cage and dance away the night, you know, and just give me drinks. You know, that's what they paid me, and they paid me in drinks. And I had no idea that, you know, that was the beginning of alcoholism and, uh, and I was nuts. I was absolutely nuts. I was nuts from the first drink to the last. You know, and the only difference is, is, is towards the end of my drink, and I knew that there was something wrong with me, and I was absolutely powerless to do anything about it, and I hated who I was. You know, and, and I get up here, and I can tell you all these great stories about the things that I did. I had wonderful ideas, visions. I had visions. I would sit at the bar and have a vision, <laughs> and I would have to act upon it immediately, because if I didn't, I'd forget it, you know, and I realized today that that's the only reason I did it right away was because I would forget, you know. And uh, I had a job working for the federal government. I had a great job. And I quit that job to become a bartender. And you see, I realized today that the reason for that was because I had to get closer to the booze. At that point, I was drinking more than I could afford to pay for. And so I had to get near a place where I could steal what I needed to drink, you know. And uh <clears throat> After I divorced that man, I bought a beautiful home in Wyndham, Maine, and uh, it was lovely. It was a beautiful big backyard. I know you want to hear that word again, right? Yard. <laughs> My backyard. It was beautiful, you know. And and prior to that, you know, I'd go every weekend, I'd go out with a gang, and I'd get drunk, and I would, you know, do my deal. And, and I was beginning to realize, now, if I was going to buy this home, I was going to have to stay home with these kids because I couldn't just be traipsing off and I couldn't afford to have a babysitter and go drink and all that stuff. So I was trying to come up with a plan, and the plan that I came up with was that um, I would go to the store and I would buy a 12-pack. And, you know, there was a lot of yard work that had to be done and these kids needed to be taken care of, and so this is what I came up with for a plan. This was my vision, you know, strategically place those beers around the backyard, mow a couple of swipes, stop, have a drink. You know, mow a couple of more swipes, stop and have a drink. Mow a couple of more swipes, stop and have a drink. I'd get that whole lawn done, look great, you know, or I'd have a little glow going on, those kids where they were supposed to be. Place looked great, looked like a golf course. I mowed that lawn every day. <laughs> then it got to be fall, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, what am I going to do? It's getting to be fall. Well, then I started raking that lawn every day, you know. And in the wintertime, I shoveled it off, you know, and just the way it was you know it was just the way it was and and I was crazy I was absolutely nuts I was absolutely crazy I just did crazy crazy things 
And as I say, one of, one of the things I did was I quit a really good job to become a bartender, you know, and I worked in this little dump, you know, just the unbelievable little, you know, ambits, little hole-in-the-wall place. But do they have ugly bartender contests down here? They have that in Maine. It's a way to raise money for multiple sclerosis. And uh, I decided that I would become the ugly bartender for the state of Maine. Now, every single bar room in the state competes in this competition. And I got this little sleazy bar. And we came in second in the state. Because I had visions. <laughs> I had visions. I had these people doing stuff every day. I mean, you know, when you're the bartender and they go, if that's my wife's dollar, I'm not here. That costs $2. You know, it, to tell you, say they just left, that costs $3. You know, all this stuff, you know. And I made all kinds of money, you know. And But I was nuts. I was absolutely nuts. And the whole deal was I worked there so that I could drink. You know, I would drink before I went to work. I would drink when I got to work. I would make up drinks, you know. By this time, my youngest child was 13, and I got a phone call one day. I used to have the happy hour crowd. And I got a phone call one day that um, they suspected that my son was selling marijuana at school. Well, I had a vision right away how I could handle that. First, I ate eucalyptus cough drops, cover up the alcohol in my breath. And then I was going to go up to that school and straighten that kid out. And what happened is this. I put that bar on the honor system. I said, you make your own drinks, pay for your own drinks, make your own change. Don't forget to put tips in the bucket. I'll be back tomorrow, collect my chips. And I left. And I went up to that school, you know, and that kid's sitting in the chair, and he's just a little guy at the time, you know, and his feet swinging back and forth. He said, I don't give a care. I says, you'll give a care when I get done with you, buddy. And I dragged him out of there, you know. And what happened was they expelled him from school. Well, I decided that we would go to the school board, and I'd be like the Hopper Valley PTA, and I would just march right in there and tell those people what's what, and said to that kid, now you watch me. I'm going to show you how to beat them at their own game. And he's just looking at me like, you know, and I so I had to have a couple of drinks to fortify myself before I could go meet with the school board. And I went to that school board meeting, and I told them what's what. And they expelled my son. <laughs> They told me he could go to an alternative school, you know, and so I dragged him off to this little alternative school, and when I got there, the director of the alternative school said, I, I asked you to bring your son. I said, I did. He was only about this tall. And he says, he's the cause of all that trouble at the high school? I said, yep. He says, well, we have room for him here. And that day that I took him, I dropped him off at that school, and when I left, there was this great big tall kid. He had him by the arm, and he was swinging him over his head, and he was like, hey, Tommy, you're going to love this school. And I thought I had turned my kid over to a pack of animals. It didn't stop me. I left him there, and I went back to that place. You know, I had, you know, in the in the big book, they talk about a sense of impending doom, and I always had an impending sense of getting fired. You know, I always knew just before they were going to can me that something was wrong, and so I'd go, and I'd do what any alcoholic would do. I quit. You know, and I'd go off to the next bar and work someplace else, and and what happened was I got this idea, you know, that maybe I'd go work at that school. Maybe I could go volunteer at that school, you know. And, and that's what happened. I went and I started volunteering at that school. And they had talked to me a couple of times about my drinking, you know, because by now I was crazy. I was absolutely nuts. What, what the real deal was is that I didn't like who I was, but I didn't know that's what was wrong with me. I thought that I had this really cool thing going on, you know, in the... In in how it works, it says, you know, the chapter to the obnoxious. Uh, well, that's what I heard, the chapter to the obnoxious, and I said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> they said agnostic, but 
again, I have a disease of perception. And what happened for me is that I, uh, I'm working at this school. I go and I start volunteering at this school, and they're talking to me about my drinking. And I'm realizing that I don't like who I am. So now I'm waking up in the morning and I'm deciding who I'm going to be. See, I had no idea that it was that I didn't like who I was. I thought I was just being cool. So I'd wake up some mornings and I'd want to be Jimmy Buffett. And I'd get all dressed up like Jimmy Buffett and I'd have to listen to Jimmy Buffett music. And it was a good thing, you know. Then one hot July day in the state of Maine, well, let me tell you first about this vehicle I had to buy myself. I fancied myself to be an athlete, and I had to buy a vehicle that was appropriate to carry my athletic equipment in. And so I bought a 23-foot van, and I, the first thing I had done to that van was I had a really nice stereo system put in it, and I had an Uga horn installed. Because, you know, you, if you're going to be cool, you got to have an Uga horn, you know, and... Uh, then I would buy music, and I would decide who I was going to be. And this one hot day in July, I decided I wanted to be Al Jolson. And uh, so I got completely dressed in blackface. Now, I hope that Angie's here, because I want her to hear me sing. <clears throat> I got dressed in complete blackface. I painted my face in all black, and I had white gloves and white tuxedo. And I got this Al Jolson tape, you know. And I'm in that van. And I'm at the main intersection in the town where I live. And these two kids pull up, and they got this hot little car with a T-roof. Great little car. And they're listening to their tunes. And I'm looking over at them and thinking, well, don't they just think they're hot shit? I push that tape in there, and I crank that thing, and I'm like, Swanee, how I love you, how I love you. These kids are like, what is up with her? And I drove all the way to Naples, Maine, so that I could sing that song, you know? And I can't sing, <laughs> but I sang Swanee all the way, you know. And and you know, then the next day I'd wake up and I'd be I'd want to be a cowgirl. I wanted to be a cowgirl so bad I got a job in a saloon, and I had all the stuff. I had cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and plaid shirt and a little denim skirt, a little vest. I had it all. I had this little van, you know, I'm driving around town, I'd go to work, I'd be a bartender there for a while, get drunk, leave the place, be in the van. The cops had this thing that now, they were starting to pull me over. And I didn't get it, you know, I just didn't get it. They'd pull me over and they'd ask me stupid stuff, like really stupid, stupid stuff. So one night they'd pull me over, you know, and here I am all dressed up like a cowgirl and I got the country music playing on the thing and the cop says to me, where have you been? I said, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to tell you a lie? He said, well, of course we want you to tell us the truth. I said, well, I have just come from my horse's funeral. <laughs> and I am very sad. I am so upset I can barely drive this vehicle. And they didn't arrest me. Said things to me like, where do you live? Well, just up the road. Well, why don't you get there? Why don't you get there, you know? And another time I'm working in this saloon, it was really hot out, and uh, decided that night that we ought to go swimming after work, 2 o'clock in the morning. First of all, I had my after-shift drink, because I'd had my before-shift drink, and all during the shift drink, now I had my after-shift drink. 
which was just straight alcohol. You know, I went into the bathroom. I couldn't find my way out of the stall. But I didn't think there was anything wrong with my driving. I could drive. I just couldn't find my way out of the stall. And So there's three women and three guys, and we decide we'd drive up to this little bridge, and we're going to jump off the bridge, right? I wouldn't jump off that bridge for a million dollars. But drunk, I'd do anything. So I had a vision, you know, of me jumping off and doing this elaborate dive into the water below, and it would be a wonderful thing. So, and I also was paranoid at this point in my life. You know, I'd take the keys out of my van, and I would put them on the passenger side tire. I don't know. I don't know any social drinkers that are thinking about where they're going to put their keys when they get out to do some foolish thing, you know. But anyway, I did. We all took our clothes off, and we began to jump off this bridge. Now, if you don't know about jumping off a bridge, you're buck naked. Get that. It hurts. And we're being really quiet, as only six drunks can be at 2 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> Pretty soon we see blue lights, and I say, I got a really good idea. Let's swim downstream. So we all swim downstream, you know, and we come up in somebody's backyard, very quietly, you know, six drunk people, very quietly running up through people's backyards to get back to the bridge to get our clothes. And we get up there. And the cops had taken our clothes. Well, there was this one guy that was with us, and he was really in a panic. He was absolutely in a panic. Lily, you don't understand. I cannot go home with my hair all wet. And I said, okay, Gil, I got an idea. You get in the front seat, roll down the window. I'll drive like a bat out of hell up the road. You can blow dry your hair, and you'll be cool. I'm sure your wife won't be upset you don't have any clothes, but your hair will be blow dried. <clears throat> so, everybody piles in. Gil's got his head out the window, and I'm going up the road. Oh, there's those blue lights. I said to them, let me handle this. <laughs> so the cop gets, you know how they do. You know how they do. They get out of the car, and they stagger, swagger on up to the vehicle, and they got the flashlight, and they shine it in there. And there's six naked people in the van. And the cop says, what's up? And I say, we are really hot. And we are just riding around trying to get cooled off. I didn't tell him Gil was trying to blow dry his hair before he went home. You know, and it wasn't very long ago, about a year ago, I was in the mall, and I see Gil and his wife walking. Now, I haven't seen Gil since I got sober. But Gil saw me, and he's like, <laughs> you know, as if I was going to go say something, you know. So I was nuts. By now, I'm absolutely crazy, you know, and I'm getting better and better ideas all the time, you know. I work for the school department. I now am employed by that same school that I dropped my son off at. And, you know, the thing that happened for me is when my kids needed me the most, it's when I was there the least. You know, I was the most loving, most neglectful mother that there can be. I loved those kids with every fiber of my being, but I couldn't be there for them. They needed me, and I couldn't be there. Because, you see, I had to be on a bar stool. By now, I had become a daily barroom drinker. And I had to be there giving you the story every day. You know, I had to be telling you how great my life was. And if you had my kids, they were this and they were that. It wasn't any of that. It was all fabrication on my part, you know. My life was a mess. 
It was an absolute mess. But I thought everybody was just like me. I thought people drank just like me, you know. And I had a friend that came one day to my house. It was a Saturday morning, and I was drinking Bloody Marys. And I said to her, I said, would you like to have a Bloody Mary? And she said, no, I don't think so. She said, I'd like to have a cup of coffee. And so I went, my idea of making coffee back then was, you know, go to the tap, turn it on, when the water gets really hot, put a little instant in, pour the hot water in, good, that's coffee, you know. And I took that coffee back, and I gave it to her, and, she dropped the cup, and the coffee went all over the carpet, you know. And uh, she jumped up, and she was as nervous as I've ever seen anybody. Oh, my God, Louie, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I was like, don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. I'll just go out into the kitchen. I'll get some paper towels. It'll be fine. And on the way to the kitchen, I had a vision. And I came back with a pair of scissors, and I got down, and I cut that stain out of the carpet, and I opened the front door, and I threw it out, you know. And she left, and she never, don't you say that down here in the south, cutting up a, cutting up a rug or something? Well, I did. By the time I got here, you know, there wasn't any rug left anywhere in my house. It was all gone. We cut it all up. You know, I had a neighbor that lived across the street, and she was a Southern Baptist. She was a born-again Christian, and she used to come to my house, and she wanted to save me. And she used to come and she'd say, Lily, you need to be saved. She says, I'm a born-again Christian. And I would say things to antagonize her. You know, I'd say things like, well, I was born right the first time. And, you know, and, and she'd say, well, you need to be saved. And I'd say, but I am saved. You know, I am saved. And, and what I would do to aggravate her is I would put the stereo speakers in the window, in the front window, get the lawn chair out, put that on the front lawn, get my little short shorts on. I had long hair down to my waist. I'd put Elvis Presley on the stereo, crank it up as loud as it could go. There's Elvis singing, How Great Thou Art, and I'm drinking tequila right out of the bottle. (laughs) And daring her to bring Brother Fletcher over to my house, you know. And that's the way I was. I mean, it was just obnoxious, you know. I was an obnoxious drunk. I was a drunk, fall-down drunk woman. You know, and I didn't like who I was. And I made that promise that all alcoholics make, you know. Tomorrow I won't drink. And what happened for this drunk is I realized that when tomorrow came, I couldn't not drink. Now I was scared. Now I was scared. This is probably the last eight years of my drinking. I drank without my own permission on a daily basis, and I hated who I had become. You know, I didn't know if one drink was going to put me over the top or whether 20 weren't going to get me there at all. You know, I just didn't know. And... I was writing checks that were bouncing all over town, and I wasn't paying the rent, and I had destroyed. That beautiful, beautiful house that I have is destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. I was absolutely certifiably crazy to the point where the guys that I drank with went out, and they got this great big wing nut, great big wing nut that came off a big ship, and they mounted it onto a, a wooden plaque, and they wrote on their certified wing nut. And I was proud of it. And I went home and I cleaned the mantle off, you know, and that thing went up there. That was like a trophy, you know. And I had a dot board hanging in my living room. Dots. (laughs) Hanging in my living room. You know, and I'd lay on the couch. I'd be drunk and I'd throw those dots and they'd go into the living room wall and there's no carpet left on the floor and seemed okay to me. Seemed okay to me, you know. Went to the bar one night, decided I wanted to have a pie closet installed in my house. Picked up these two drunk guys. They said they were carpenters. Bring them home. Tomorrow we're going to install us a pie closet. You know, we get up. 
about 8 o'clock in the morning, drank a half a gallon of whiskey, and then decided where we were going to put the pie closet. I said, well, actually, I don't think I want a pie closet at all. What I'd like to do is knock this wall out right here so that I could see right on straight through to the living room from the kitchen. So we got us a circular saw. And there's dust everywhere, and I'm telling you what, you couldn't even see. It's like this. You know, and that's not how you cut up, you know, drywall. But that's how we did it, you know. And after we got the hole made, we decided that we couldn't take it all the way through because if we did, you wouldn't be able to get downstairs. So now I'm stuck with this big hole in the wall, and they go, well, what are we going to do? I said, let's make a pie closet. That was the biggest pie closet you ever saw. They could have put all the hotel pies in that closet and had room left over, you know. And after I was sober about five years, you know, my brother moved in with me, and we were cleaning out that pie closet, you know. I filled that pie closet. You know, anything I didn't know what to do with, you open the door and throw it in the pie closet and close the door, you know. And uh, he took out this letter one day, and he says to me, Sis, you better deal with this. It says urgent right on it. And it was dated 1981, and I said to him, do you think they're still waiting for an answer? (laughs) So I was nuts. I was absolutely nuts. I didn't like who I had become. I'd absolutely destroyed this house. Absolutely destroyed it. There was a punch hole in every single door. Every single wall had a hole in it. There were dot boards hanging in the living room. There was no carpet left. You know, I'm by now a barroom drinker. I drank every day. And it was Christmas time, you know, and I'm sitting on a bar stool and I'm thinking, those kids don't deserve Christmas. What the hell do they do for me? They don't do nothing for me. And uh, But I got guilty about 10 minutes of 6 on Christmas Eve and I decided, well, I better do something. So I went across the street, save a buck eds, and I bought a Christmas tree, you know, an artificial tree. It was the sorriest looking thing you ever saw. And I brought it home and I put it up and I hung the stuff on it. It looked terrible. Well, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And all of a sudden I got a vision, you know. I, what I needed to do is I need to paint that living room, you know, and... So I went downstairs, and I didn't have enough paint to do the whole thing, so I mixed up all the paint I had together and put it all together, and I painted the living room, and I painted right around that Christmas tree. And You know, that was the Christmas before I got sober, and I have pictures of me with that Christmas tree, you know, and the tips of the Christmas tree have got orange, pumpkin orange paint on it, and vodka bottles rolling on the floor, and me and the kids sitting under the Christmas tree with a picture, you know. And this, here's the thing, you know, if you're a drunk like I'm a drunk, I thought that was all right. I thought it was okay. You know, it was okay with me because you see what had happened is I'd lowered the bar. I kept lowering the bar. I kept lowering my standards. You know, it's not the way I was brought up. It's not what happened to me. It's not what God wanted for me. You know, I had no idea. I had no idea. But by now, this is how it would go. You know, I would go to work. I would get out of school and I would, my car would automatically go into the bar. And, I, and they would automatically have a beer and a tequila. You know, they'd have a shot of tequila and a beer chaser. And that's what I did. And then by 9 o'clock at night, I'd be drunk again, and I'd be like, God, how did I do this again? I didn't want to do this again. I didn't want to be drunk again. But I was drunk. You know, and I, I used to think I was going to bed. I didn't go to bed. I passed out. You know, I'd come to, and I'd have that hatchet in my head, you know, and my stomach would be upset, and, and and I feel like I weighed 5,000 pounds and I couldn't pick myself up off the pillow. And But as soon as my feet hit the floor, I'd decide, who was I going to be today? Who was I going to be? You know? And I didn't want to drink. And I made that deal. You know? I won't drink tomorrow. And then tomorrow would come and I could not drink. You know? And then I'd make the next deal that an alcoholic makes. And that deal is, you know, tomorrow won't drink till noon. And then it would be the hell that it's noon somewhere. You know? And... 
And it was absolute insanity. It was absolute insanity. My kids didn't like looking at me, and they looked at me with looks of disgust. And you know what? I looked at me with looks of disgust, but I had no idea what to do. So my my solution to that would be to go in the bar, walk in, sit down, tell everybody that was in the bar at the time that I was an alcoholic. If you didn't like it, sit down there because I don't know what's going to happen after I get this shot of tequila in me. And if you don't like what I'm going to do, too bad. You better sit somewhere else. Then after I'd get a couple of drinks in me, I'd pull the fire alarm and they'd all leave. You know, they'd all go outside like they're supposed to. Not me. I'd clean off the bar, take all the change off the bar. And then when you all came back in, I'd set the house up. And I was nuts. I was absolutely nuts, you know. And this is what happened for me, you know. Um, on the night before my last drunk, I dyed my hair purple. Um I don't know where I was going with that at the time, but I just thought it'd be a good thing. You know, I'll dye my hair purple, and and then I'll be all right. See, I'll dress up like Jimmy Buffett, and then I'll be all right. You know, I'll just dress up like Al Jolson, and I'll be all right. And I'll be a cowgirl. I'll be all right. I'll dye my hair purple. I'll be all right. And I dyed my hair purple. And what happened for this drunk is that I went to the bar the next day, like I always do, and now my hair is eggplant purple. Long before it was fashionable to have purple hair and orange hair and blue hair, by the way. And uh, I walked in and I sat down and I said to the bartender, I think I might be an alcoholic, but I'm not sure. You should keep the drinks coming while I make up my mind. You know, and somewhere in the course of that night, I said to that bartender, I'm going to ask God to give me a sign. See, I always believed in God. I believed in God when I was a little girl and I believed in God when I was a hopeless drunk. I just didn't know that all I had to do was ask God for help. I just didn't, I couldn't figure that out because I was a drunk. Couldn't figure that out. So I told this bartender that I was going to go out and I was going to ask God to give me a sign and if God gave me a sign, I was going to quit drinking. And what happened for this drunk is I went out and I crawled in the back of that van. You know, and in the back of that van I had a bed. And I had a change of clothes and I had makeup and mirrors and tequila and beer and Anything you needed, you could stay there for a long time. And by this time in my life, I was also driving school bus for that school, and they happened to be a van that was as big as the van that I, my personal van, and I never knew. I never knew. Was I in my van? Was I in the school van? You know, if the school van's been at the bar all night, i got to try to figure out a reason why it's been here all night. And if I'm in my van, i got to take my van home so I can get the school van, so I can go get the kids, and I was exhausted. But I remember that night getting in the back of that van, and just before I passed out on the bed that was in that van, I said, God, give me one-tenth of the faith that my mother has. And the next morning I got up and I went and I got the school van and I went and I picked the kids up. And we had to drive a long ways back then. It was 25 miles over to the school and I had those kids on that bus and I was sweating. I was really sweating and I was shaking and baking and I had no idea what was going on. But I had a sense of impending doom that was like none other that I'd ever experienced. And I hated who I was. And on the way to school, I kept praying, God, please let me get these kids to school okay. You know, and I kept feeling this pressure in my chest, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse. The sweating got worse and worse and worse. And Luckily, I made it to school with those kids, you know, and I climbed out of that van, and I walked into school, and I immediately collapsed with a massive coronary. And I remember waking up in the ambulance thinking it didn't need to be that big a sign. And uh, 
And then what happened is they called my family members and they said, you know, she's, we don't know if she's going to make it or not. She suffered a massive heart attack and, and you better get in here. And uh, I didn't know that they had done that. See, I was hooked up to all these machines and, and uh, <clears throat> this, is what, this is what my vision of the whole deal was. I woke up, <clears throat> there was a white pillow under my head and I saw my brother standing at the foot of the stretcher. And I thought, well, you better come up with something quick. <laughs> and so he said to me, he had big, beautiful blue eyes like the color of the sky. He said in this very soft and sweet voice, Sis, what happened? And I said, my God, I don't know, but whatever they're giving me, it's turning my hair purple. <clears throat> and I knew that was a lie. I knew that was a lie. I dyed my hair purple. But, I mean, I couldn't admit to these people that I dyed my hair purple. i crazy. But, you see, I wasn't hanging out with my family at the end of my drinking. They still are amazed. They go, we can't believe you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, man, if you guys knew the stuff that I did, but more importantly, the stuff that I didn't do, you see, because at the end of my drinking, I couldn't be a mom. I couldn't be a good mom. Those kids needed me, and I couldn't be there. I could not be there for them. As hard as I tried, I couldn't be there. What happened for this drunk is I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital for eight days. And they asked me every day. They'd have a team of doctors would come in and they'd say to me, you know, how much do you drink? And I told them how much. I thought how much I drank. You know, I mean, I wasn't counting my drinks, you know. I started drinking at a place called the Top of the East and I ended up at a place called the Dump on the Hump. And, and the reason that I ended up at the Dump on the Hump was because those guys didn't care how much you drank, you know. So I wasn't counting how much I was drinking. You know, and they ask me, I say, well, I don't know. You know, I have probably, uh, I can tell you what my bar bill is, but I don't know how many drinks that covers, you know, and how many somebody else bought for me. I mean, and they, not one of them said to me, do you think that's too much? So I thought, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic after all. That's what I thought. You know, what happened for me is this, as I went home that night from the hospital, I wouldn't even let my family give me a ride home. Because I knew what I had done to that house. That house was destroyed. The grass was up to your butt. There were beer cans and, and booze bottles all over the place. And there was no carpet left on the floor. Every single every single wall in the house had a punch hole in it. You know, here's the other thing. You know, that house had 13 windows in it. There were 13 bullet holes in that window. I don't know if I was shooting out or the neighbors were shooting in, you know. I have no idea. I have no idea. I am telling you God's truth. I have no idea how the hell those bullet holes got in those windows. I don't know. But I know that I aggravated a lot of people, you know. And I know that it was a sorry mess that my house was in. And here's what happened. Somebody from my work gave me a ride home. I wouldn't even let them come in. They dropped me off in the driveway. It's really cold. It was in November. I went in <clears throat> to that house. There was a note on the door from the bank, and they wanted that house. They were going to foreclose. If I didn't come up with a mortgage payment, by December 24th, they were going to foreclose on that house. And I was six months in arrears on mortgage payments because I didn't, it was long since since I'd paid a mortgage payment. And I opened the door and I went in the house. It was cold in that house. There was no fuel in that house, no oil, no heat, no lights, no telephone, no running water, no groceries, no kids, no carpet. I couldn't stay there. So I left and I went to the bar. You know, and I sat in the same seat I always sat in. There was a mirror behind that seat. 
And I ordered a shot of tequila and a beer chaser. And I looked up. I doctored my hand all up to do that shot of tequila. And I looked up. And there was that moment of clarity they talk about, you know, and it was a split second just like that. And I saw me. And who I saw scared the hell out of me, you know. And what I saw was a pathetic drunk woman. And I knew that if I drank that drink, that I would die in a gutter. And I set that drink back down on the table. And while I actually had my last drink of alcohol on October the 29th of 1989, I consider November 8th to be my sobriety date because that's the day I put that drink on the table. And I walked out of there. The next day I went to work. I didn't hear the doctor say that you needed to stay home and take care of yourself after a heart attack. So I went to work. There was a woman at my work, and to this day I believe that that woman has more guts than anybody I've ever met in my life because that woman had enough balls to write me a note and send me home to read it. And in the note she said, that she was a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she loved me very much. And that the kids in that school loved me very much. And it broke their heart to see me go out of there in an ambulance. And they thought I was going to die. And she suspected that my problem was that I drank too much. She was a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I wanted what she had, I could go to a meeting. And I thought, how dare she? You know, in that same afternoon, I went to my doctor, and my doctor said to me, eyeball to eyeball, Lily, I want to tell you something. He said, your heart attack was a direct result of your use and abuse of alcohol. I think you're an alcoholic. And I also want you to know that when we did the test on your heart, we have determined that you have third-stage cirrhosis of the liver. If you do not quit drinking, you will be dead in five years. If you can't find your way to put that drink down, maybe you should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was twice in one day that I'd heard Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. So the next day, I went to school, and I told her that I would go to a meeting with her. And uh, she said, okay, don't drink until tomorrow night. And uh, do you think you can do that? I was thinking, well, yeah, that shouldn't be too hard till tomorrow night, you know. I hadn't had a drink now for like eight or nine days. And I was shaking and baking, but I had no idea. You know, I had no idea what was going on with me. And uh, this is what happened. You know, I knew I wasn't going. Got closer and closer to the time to go, and I knew I wasn't going to go. And what happened for me is that one-tenth of a faith that I prayed for, I prayed for one-tenth of the faith that my mother had. And what I heard was my mother's voice. And that voice said, if you're not going to go, at least you call her and tell her because it would be really rude not to show up. And I went to my phone to call her. My phone was dead because I owed my bill about 700 bucks when I got here because, you know, I'd get drunk and call you up. And uh, I got sick of that and they shut me off, you know, and... So anyway, never occurred to me to go to a phone booth and put some money in a phone booth and call her up. I drove 15 miles to her house, tell her I couldn't come. She said, come right in. And I will never forget it. I walked into her house, and she had the table all set. And she had a gift for me. It was all wrapped up. had a big bow on it. It was about the size of a big book. I unwrapped it. <laughs> Blue book, big white letters, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm thinking, I mean, I can still feel the sweat on my lip. I'm thinking, how in the hell am I going to get out of this, you know? And she said, why don't you read the inscription? And so I opened the book, and on the first page of the book, she had written, To Lily, my friend with love, may you someday know how important this day is to me. Fasten your seatbelt and welcome to the greatest adventure of your life one day at a time. And I thought, how in the hell am I getting out of this? You know? And she took me to that meeting. And I sat in the third row, right where this lady right here sat. Purple hair, 
sticking right up straight. Collar up to here. Looking around the room. Well, I have sunk to an all-time low now. (laughs) You people are introducing yourselves as alcoholics. And they're going around the room and every single person, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic, I'm Sally, I'm an alcoholic. Look at our life, they came to me. I'm Lily, I'm an alcoholic. Lady gave up. She gave a great talk. I don't know what she talked about. I have no idea. The only thing I know that that woman said that night was this. And these are the words that saved my life. She said, here at the Portland Group, we have a way to help you mock off your time in sobriety and start a new way of life. And we will offer you a white chip. And I thought to myself, you have got to be kidding. You don't drink and they pay you off in poker chips? Oh, I don't even know how to play cards. You know, I was like, oh, my God, these people are nuts. The next words she said were the words that saved my life. She said, if you're too afraid to pick up a white chip, see me after the meeting and I'll give you one. And the deal is that all of my life I had been afraid. I had four brothers, two younger, two older. I could never let them know I was afraid. You know, I was as tough as they were, you know. I never let anybody know I was afraid. The more afraid I was, the more in your face I was, you know. So she said, anybody here want to start a new way of life and pick up a white chip? And I marched right up there and got one because I didn't want you guys to know I was afraid. And a wonderful thing happened. You applauded. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool, you know. And then after the meeting, this woman came up to me. You know, I've never seen that woman again. I have never, ever seen her again. And she said to me, Lily, welcome. You're amongst your own kind. And I thought, get a life, sister. (laughs) But she said the next words, you know, that I needed to hear, and that was keep coming back. I thought you needed me. I thought you needed me, you know, so I went back. So now I'm going to this meeting once a week, like Weight Watchers. The rest of the time, I'm wandering around the mall. And back then, you couldn't drink in the mall. They didn't have restaurants that served alcohol, so it was the only safe place I knew to go. And I'd go to the mall, and I was crazy. I was crazy. You know, and I'd be saying to the manager of the stores, don't you think you should hang that over there? Don't you feel like an idiot with that penis hat on and that three-piece suit? And, you know, if you mark that down, you might sell it. And that guy was like, thank God when she found out there was a meeting every day of the week, you know. And what happened for me is I'm like 30 days sober, and I'm thinking, I can't stay here. These people are so serious. Every meeting I went to, every meeting, cunning, baffling, powerful, terminal, progressive, fatal. Lighten up. Jeez. Lighten up. I thought, I can't stay here. There wasn't anybody laughing, you know. So I decided that I was going to go to that that meeting that night and I was going to get my 30-day blood chip. I called it the blood chip. It was red. I was going to get the blood chip. And then I was going to go get drunk. I went to that meeting that night. And I'm sitting right in the front row because now I've heard at least a little bit of what they said. You know, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth and sit in the front row. And and then that way there you can't be judging what everybody else is wearing and what time they got here and where they're sitting and who they're sitting with. Sit in the front row. So I'm sitting in the front row. Can't wait till I call for that blood chip on a march right up there and get it. Amazing thing happened. This woman came out. She had a Christmas tree on her head. All jingly and lit up. Playing Jingle Bell Rock. And she says, 
Hi everyone, my name's Ricky, and if I don't drink between now and May 1st, I'll be sober for 15 years. And I'm sitting in the front row and I went, yes! You're crazy! Right? And everybody in the room was laughing, you know, and after the meeting I got up and I grabbed her shirt, and I'm worrying that shirt, and I'm going, you're nuts, it doesn't seem to bother them, can you help me? Oh God, can you help me? If it works for you, maybe it'll work for me, you know, and... I want to tell you, this morning they buried Ricky. I tell you, she was an inspiration to so many people in the state of Maine. She wore these crazy hats all the time. You know, and I never understood why she wore the crazy hats until she took me to my first international in Minneapolis. And she said, Lily, it's really hard for somebody to be sad when they see somebody in a crazy hat. And you never know that the drunk you see today may need to have a little laughter like you did the first day that I saw you. You know, so I hope all those people today are wearing a hat. It began my journey, you know, and then after that, you know, the next few meetings I'd go to, there'd be this lady there. Her name was Jane, and she'd stand at the podium and say, happy, joyous, and praying. I'm like, no, get a life. You know, get a life, you know. And then, you know, I got a sponsor because they said get a sponsor, and that sponsor said call me at 5.30 in the morning. And if I called at quarter six, she'd hang up on me. She'd say 5.30. If I say 5.30, mean 5.30. And then she'd send me, where are you going to a meeting tonight? And I smart. Now, I caught on quick. I got the book. I'm going here. She'd say, okay, why don't you pick me up? I'll go with you. <clears throat> I needed that, you know. And then I was convinced that she would hang up for me and call that meeting and say, Lily's coming to this meeting tonight. And then they'd get Jane. And she'd come. She'd stand at the podium, tell her story. And she'd tell everybody how she was happy, joyous, and free. And I'd think, well, I don't want to be happy, joyous, and free. Just leave me alone, you know. Then I'm, now I'm doing the steps. Who? Restore me to sanity. I had no idea I was nuts. I know it's nuts, but I didn't know the kind of nuts they were talking about. You know, they were talking about my kind of nuts. <laughs> and uh, that lady's my sponsor today. Oh, happy, joyous, and free yourself. She's my sponsor. Amazing things have come to pass for me. <coughs> now I'm going to start coughing. You guys have something in the in the air down here that's really getting to me. Excuse me. There's a power in these rooms that can only be found in these rooms, you know. There's a light in our eyes that can only be found in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't see that in other people. They can be having the most joy-filled day of their life. They don't have the light in their eyes that we have. And I tell you that my three living children, two out of those three children, went on to become active alcoholics. And when I was newly sp- sober, my sponsor said to me, Lily, you have no excuses. She says, I want you to go to CSO. I want you how to learn how to do 12-step calls. I want you to learn how to answer the hotline. And this is what happened for me. I went down there and I met this man named Al, and he taught me about the traditions and the concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he taught me how to answer that hotline, you know. And I volunteered down there every day for a long time. And one day the phone rang and I answered the phone and it was my daughter. Thank you. And uh, she was calling for help. And I didn't know what to do. I hung up the phone and I said, Al, I don't know what to do. And he said, of course you do. He said, you get another woman, he says, and you go sit by her bed and you tell her if she wants what you have, she does what she does. And that if she does as we have done, if you do as we have done, you will never have to feel like this again. <clears throat> 
And my daughter is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous today with 14 years of sobriety. Uh, thank you. You know, that's a miracle. That is an absolute miracle, you know, that um, when I asked her, you know, why she came to Alcoholics Anonymous, she said to me, you know, Mom, she said, I've watched you and uh, you're so happy. And uh, happy, joyous, and free, you know. And uh, she said, you cleaned up that house and I restored that house, you know. And I want to tell you a little God story. Remember I told you that I went to that house on November 8th and there was a note on the door from the bank and they wanted the back mortgage and they wanted it by December 24th or they were going to foreclose on that house. And I was scared to death I was going to lose my home. And uh, my sponsor said to me, well, you just get on your knees. And she says, and you pray and you pray about it and you ask God. And if God wants you to be there, you'll be there. And if, if God doesn't want you to be there, you won't be there. And you'll be wherever he wants you to be and that'll be okay. And I want you to think of the worst thing that you can think of that will happen to you. And I knew that I wouldn't be homeless. I knew that I had a loving family that would take me in and I started saving all my pennies and counting up my change and stopped spending my money on drinking. And on December the 23rd, I counted my money, and I was $500 short of having the amount of money that I needed to give to the bank. And at Thanksgiving that year, we had gotten this thing in the state of Maine called a property tax rebate. And uh, so my sponsor said, well, why don't you fill it out and send it in? And I started laughing. I said, yeah, like they're going to give me something. Ha, ha, ha. What a big joke that is. And on December 23rd, I went to the mailbox, and there was a letter from the state of Maine, and inside that letter was a check for $500. And I've totally restored that house today. It's a beautiful house, you know. My brother lives in that house today because uh, God has given me a wonderful gift. You know, he gave me the ability to be able to take care of my elderly mother. And so I have moved into that home, which was my childhood home, and I've completely restored that and made it handicapped accessible for my mom. And and it's uh, it's a miracle, you know. And on my third anniversary, my daughter stood at the podium going, <sighs> practicing some Lamaze breathing while she read how it works. And all the guys in my home group said, Lily, take her to the hospital and get that baby. And i got to tell you something. If you think it's a big deal, you remember when you had your first baby? Remember how that felt? Remember the miracle? You looked at that baby and you thought, God, God is so good. He's this beautiful baby. If you think that's a big deal, you ought to try being in the room when your first grandchild is born. I got to tell you, it's huge. Absolutely huge. You know, and uh, when I was celebrating my eighth anniversary, one of the guys in my home group gave me a medallion with a purple triangle on it. I had my grandson for the weekend, and he was three now, and I took home that medallion, and I said, look, Derek, look what Grandy's got, and he said, oh, Grandy, it's beautiful, and I said, I got one for you, too. Would you like to have one, and he said, well, what's it for again, and I said, well, it's because I don't drink, and he said, no, thanks. I like to drink. As a matter of fact, I'm thirsty right now. (laughs) See, that was my deal. I was thirsty right now all the time, you know, and My youngest child, you know, the one that needed me the most, that 13-year-old that was selling marijuana in school, his disease took him to uh, prison, and it almost killed me. 
And I want to tell you something, and I mean this with every single fiber of my being. It is my personal belief that there isn't anything on the face of this earth more difficult than watching somebody you love dying from the disease of alcoholism. And I know what I'm talking about. Because you see, my middle child, who was not an alcoholic, I buried four years ago in May. That can't hold a candle to what it was like watching that kid in prison. That was the hottest time of my life. The absolute hottest time of my life. He would go to prison. And what I would see is my baby. You know, this handsome little kid. And he'd be in jail, and I'd go there to visit him, and then I'd get there, and this is what has happened, you know. When you go to jail, you get that cocky jailhouse attitude, you know, and then I'd want to reach across the, ta- the table and rip his tonsils out of his throat, and I'd beat him up and think to myself, you know, Jesus, don't you get it? Don't you get it? You know, and by now I'm sober. And uh, I'd come out of there, and I'd, my heart would be broken. It'd just be so broken because... Seeing him, you know, in that prison and knowing that, you know, the doors slam and they make that god-awful noise when they slam. And I come home and I tell my sponsor, I'd say, I went to see Tommy today. And she'd say, well, what's the matter? And I'd say, he's breaking my heart. He's killing me to see him there. And she said, well, you can't go there anymore. And then he'd get out and then I'd say, you know, I'm not coming. If you get yourself in jail again, I'm not coming, you know. And and by now I'm starting to learn some tough love in this program, you know. I'm learning to clean up the wreckage of my past and I'm learning to be a good mom, you know. And I'm learning that a good mom sometimes has to say no. And one night my son called me and he said, Mom, I'm going to kill myself. And it was God's voice that spoke back to him because I said to him, <clears throat> And it's nothing I ever would have thought of on my own. I said, I am so sorry that you have to do this to yourself. If you decide to check out, go knowing that I love you. And there's a way out, and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope you find your way there. And I hung up on him. And then I called my sponsor, and I said, Tommy's going to kill himself. And she said, I'll be right there. And we walked the floor all night long, waiting for that phone to ring. And I want to tell you that that young man did not kill himself. And if he were here today, he'd tell you that was the day that his life turned around because he realized they'd burned the last bridge. And uh, he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous with six years of sobriety. And... uh, God puts the frosting on the cake, you know. God puts the frosting on the cake. On May the 1st of 2002, I got the phone call that no mother ever wants to get. And that phone call was that my son, Sammy, was dead. And he was my super achiever, you know. He was my kid that did everything he ever wanted to do in life, you know. When he was a little boy, he wanted to be a policeman. And he'd say to me, Mom, when I grow up, I'm going to be a policeman. I'd say, sure you are, honey. And, uh, and when he was a senior in high school, he said to me, Mom, he says, I'm going to be a Marine. And I said, sure you are, son. And, you know, he did. He went off and he joined the Marines and became the Marine of his cycle. And if you don't know what that is, it means that he was the lead Marine of that training group and he got the dress blues and he led the parade and I was able to go there and see him graduate from boot camp. And They took my little boy and they made him into a man. 
And he went in the Marine Corps, and he stayed in the Marine Corps for a while, and he got out and came home, and he couldn't find work. And this friend of his worked for the Department of Defense in Washington, D.C. And, you know, when those kids were little, I went to a dot tournament, drunk, took my kids, and we saw some of the sites in D.C. And he said to me, Mom, someday I'm going to be a policeman in this city. And I said, sure you are, son. And his friend called and he said, you want to go to work for the Department of Defense? And my son said, like, they're giving those jobs away. And he said, no, really, send your resume down. And my son faxed his resume down there on a Monday and the following Friday he left for Washington, D.C. and began his career there. And uh, his job with the Department of Defense was to guard foreign dignitaries. And the greatest thrill of his life was to guard the Pope and to guard Mother Teresa. And he said the biggest thrill in his life was to be hugged by Mother Teresa. And he used to call me up, you know, and he had that cell phone. He'd call me up and he'd go, listen, Mom. And I'd hear all this racket in the background. You'd go, what's that? And he'd say, well, I'm at the Paul McCartney concert, and I'm God and Paul McCartney. I'd go, yeah, I'll show you why, you know. <laughs> he'd call me up. The Pope came to town, you know. And my mom is a good Catholic lady, you know, and she watches that channel. Well, at home it's Channel 54, and it's the Catholic channel. And so, you know, when the Pope came, they had it all over the TV, you know, the Pope, the Pope, the Pope. My mother would be glued right to that TV, you know, and she said to me, you'd think they'd show the audience more. <laughs> now, the only reason she wanted them to show the audience was because my son was God and the Pope, you know, and and we knew that. And he would never be able to tell us who he was God, but he'd call us up and he'd say, well, just watch the news and you'll know who's coming to town and you'll know what I'll be doing, you know. And, and then he called me one day and he said, Mommy, he says, I got a chance to live my dream. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah, he says, I'm going to quit working for the Department of Defense and I'm going to go be a police officer. I'm going to be a police officer for the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. What do you think about that? And I said, I think that if that's what you want to do, honey, that's what you ought to do. And uh, he went off and he went to police academy and graduated with honors and he became a policeman and I was able to be there for his graduation. And, and he loved what he did. He worked in a place called Lanacost here in Washington, D.C. and it's a pretty rough neighborhood and... Uh, on May the, on actually on April the 30th, he called me and he said, "Hey, mom, how you doing?" I said, "Good. How are you?" He said, "I'm good." He says, "My ankles are a little sore." He says, "We've been working really hard." He says, "We've been working 14-hour days. The IMF is in town, and you know we have to be in full riot gear." And and I said, "I can't imagine anybody wanting to do this for a living." But you know, he did it and he was good at it. And on May the 1st, I got a phone call at 10 minutes at two in the morning to tell me that my son was dead. He died of a very sudden disease called sepsis. Uh, it was very, very quick, and uh, I made one phone call that day and called my friend in AA. I didn't need to do anything else because, you see, I had done service work in the state of Maine, and they knew me all over the state of Maine, you know, and they came from everywhere to support me, and AA was there for me in every single way. They told me what clothes I had to wear, and they told me to put my left foot in front of my right foot and to keep on marching, to not drink it. You know, the miracle is this, is that I never once thought about drinking. It never occurred to me to drink. I drove to Hollowell that day to tell my youngest son, my Tommy, who had been out of jail at that point for about eight, mo eight months, and I was scared to death driving up there because I thought, you know, I'm going to lose both of my sons today because he's going to drink. I'm sure he will. And I had no faith in God at that point. That day, my faith was gone. I needed it. I needed that one-tenth of the faith, you know. I drove up there, and I went in the house, and I sat down with my son, and I said, your brother died last night. You know what he said to me? 
He said, Mom, a drink isn't going to fix this. Here's this kid telling me a drink isn't going to fix this, you know, and he didn't have to drink and neither did I. An amazing thing happened. You know, they sent 70 police officers from Washington, D.C. They brought my son's cruiser, all decked in black, and uh, we went to the funeral home and it was just packed. And there were all these cruisers from Washington, D.C., and they're very impressive. You know, they got the flag, flying flag on them and all this thing. My son's partner came up to me and he said, Lily, my God, we've never seen anything like this in our lives. We've never seen anybody with this many friends. And I said, well, you know, they couldn't all come. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, they wanted to come. I said, but when they got here and saw all these cruises, they kept on going. And my son was buried with full police, you know, mil, uh, police and military honors. You know, the Marine Corps were there and uh, the police department were there, and it was something to behold. I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like that in my town that I came from. And they shut down all the traffic, and the fire department had big ladders across the road. And it was an incredible experience. It was an absolutely incredible experience. And you know, we didn't drink, and those police officers insisted that we come to Washington D.C. for a blue mass. And I went there and. I don't ever want to forget what it was like. You know, they took me on a ride along, and uh, Bobby can attest to the fact that a lot of places, I'm sure, in Philadelphia where they don't let their mothers go. And there's a lot of places in Washington, D.C. where they don't take their wives and mothers, but once they've passed, they take you there. And we went on a ride along, and my son Tommy was with me, and he looks exactly like his brother. And I didn't see it until they pointed it out to me. But I do know that when he laughs, he sounds exactly like him. And we went on a ride along, and and the people there in in that place where my son worked, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol abuse, and and it's really a sad, sad place to go. And they would come to the car, and they'd look, and they'd go, "We thought half past. We thought half past," you know. And and then the police chief, Washington D.C. police chief, said, "We'd love to have your other son come work for us." And I said, "I'm sorry, you had one son. You can't have my other son." We got ready that day to go to that blue mass, and it was in this little church in the neighborhood where my son worked, and it was packed. And I walked, and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. You know, at home I had all my friends, but now I'm down there, and I didn't know how I was going to get through, you know. And walked into that little church and got to the door, and there it was laid out with the most beautiful shade of purple carpet you ever saw. Matched my hair. They had the worst picture of my son I ever saw in my life on the piano. (laughs) And these people gave him a send-off like I have never seen before. It was incredible. And those people came up to me afterwards and they said to me, your son was a good cop. Your son was the kind of a cop that would stop and say, hey, how you doing today? And then he would take the time to listen. You know, I am a joy-filled woman today. I am a joy-filled woman. I have a life second to none. I used to hear people say that, and I'd be like, oh, gag me, for Christ's sake. Get a life second to none, you know. That beautiful house that I, you know that house that was beautiful when I started, and then I destroyed it, it's back to being a beautiful house again. And I own it outright. I paid the bank off, you know. And I learned that here. I learned how to pay my bills in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
that you didn't throw them in the cupboard and shut the door when they were marked urgent. You opened them up to see what it was they needed. And then you called them people up and you made deals with them, and then you kept your end of the bargain. You know what i got to tell you, in the beginning, you know, I didn't think I'd be able to stay here, but I read those steps. I was pretty smart. I read those steps. You know, I particularly liked the ninth step. I wasn't too crazy about the fourth and fifth. I wasn't going to do that. And so the woman that I picked to be my sponsor was somebody I drank with because I figured I could skate by. She already knew my crap, you know. That ninth step, though, was pretty pretty amazing to me. You know, made direct amends. Because, you see, I had heard my ex-husband was in this program, and that bum owed me $130,000, and I was going to stick around until he made his amends. And if you had ever told me that there would be a day that I would be able to speak kindly about that man, I would tell you you were crazy. And you know, a funny thing happened. You know, my daughter got married a few years ago, and uh, my sponsor told me I needed to clean up my side of the street, and that her father needed to be invited to that wedding if she wanted to invite him, and that I had no business of putting my opinion on her. And, you know, I was able to call him up and invite him for coffee, and I was able to sit down and clean up my side of the street. And I didn't have to point my finger as she was saying, it wasn't about you did this and you did that, and what... Lou was saying this morning, you know, how we point out other people's character defects. It was about my defects of character and how my defects of a character affected him. And I was able to clean up my side of the street. And I want to tell you, today he's a grandpa. You know, and he's a good grandpa. I'll tell you a couple of other things, you know. The very, very best thing that I am today, the best thing that I am, without a doubt, is grandma. I am the best grandma that anybody could ever have. And I, you know, I never thought I'd be one of those grandmas that had the whole thing of picture. I got them. If you want to see them, I'll bring them down to the lobby tomorrow. We can go, oh, you know, I got them all. You know, and those kids are absolutely wonderful. You know, I got this little boy. His name is Dark, and he's absolutely the kindest, most compassionate, sweetest young man. He's 13 today, you know. He's kind, and he's caring, and he's loving, and he loves to be touched, and he loves a back rub, and then I got this little six-year-old granddaughter. She walks into the room, and in a minute, she's got you in the palm of her hand. I'm Sadie Mae, and I don't like dolls. I like spiders and snakes. <laughs> We're saving a seat for her, you know. Yeah. And now I want to tell you about the frosting on the cake. I got this phone call to come to Nashville, Tennessee, <clears throat> and my son got married last September. Okay? And here's what happened. He started going to AA, and he met this girl in the halls of AA, and they fell in love, and they went together for a long time, and they decided to get married. And I got invited to go to an auction for men in recovery. And uh, I've been pretty good about handling my money since I got sober and somebody taught me how to do it, you know. And So I got a few little pennies in the bank. I'm not rich, but I got a few little pennies in the bank. And So I thought I could go to this auction and support these guys in recovery. And one of the things they were auctioning off was a cruise. And I thought, boy, I'd really like to have that cruise. If I got that cruise, I would give it to my son for his honeymoon. So there was about me and ten other women, and we took one table at that thing, and we spent about $5,000 that night. I got that cruise. And here's the deal. I'm walking around with a big cardboard cutout of that ship, you know. 
I got it under my arm, you know. And these guys, you know, are just newly in recovery. And one of the guys comes up to me and he says, you got the cruise. That is so cool. And I said, I ain't keeping it. I'm giving it away. And he says, you're giving it away? And I said, yeah, I'm going to give it to my son. He's getting married. and I'm going to give him this cruise. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. He said, who's your son? And I said, Tom. And he said, Tom? Tommy H? And I said, yeah. And he goes, he's my sponsor. (laughs) I got the little book that went with the cruise. And I came home and I read the book. And guess what? They're getting married September 24th. And the cruise is leaving September 25th. That's the frosting on the cake. So we had a beautiful sober wedding. I gave those kids that cruise to go on their honeymoon. They went on the cruise. They come back 12 weeks later, show me the pictures of the wedding, and my son says, Ma, you know that honeymoon cruise? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, it was the conception cruise. No, I didn't get it. What? We're going to have a baby. He says, and she was conceived on that boat. He said, she. He said, if it's a boy, I'm going to name it Sammy after my brother. And if it's a girl, she's going to name her. And that baby was due July the 2nd. And then I got a phone call to come to Nashville, Tennessee. And I said to my kids, you better have that baby on time. You know, i got to leave for Nashville. <laughs> i got to leave for Nashville. July 6th, I'm on a plane. better have that baby on time. Here comes the frosting on the cake. On June the 10th, I was asked to speak on behalf of my friend Ricky, who had passed away. And my son called me. And I've been taking organ lessons, and I've learned how to play the organ. And my gift to the baby was going to be her very own CD, played by her very own grandma, with all my favorite songs on it, and all her daddy's favorite songs, and all her mommy's favorite songs. A friend of mine that does taping came to my house on June the 9th, and he said, let me help you with that. So we created, I played that music on the organ and he taped it and we made a CD to honor my granddaughter that we knew by now was going to be a little girl named Maya. And on June the 10th, my son called me to say, Mom, we're going to get that baby today. And then just in case you don't know, June 10th was the 71st anniversary of the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the frosting on the cake. And little Maya was born, and I'm going to tell you what, she's a beautiful little girl, and uh, my son is a daddy, and he's a sober daddy, and she's got a sober mummy and a sober daddy, and she's got a sober grandma, and she's got a sober aunt and a sober uncle. I don't know how it gets any better than that. I do not know. You know, God has blessed me beyond my wildest dreams, and I want to tell you that I believe from the bottom of my heart that if the only thing you ever get when you come to Alcoholics Anonymous is sober, then you got the whole full deal. You got the whole full deal. Because you see, if you're a drunk like I'm a drunk, and you couldn't not drink, and you found your way here and you're sitting in a seat today, fasten your seatbelt and welcome to the greatest adventure of your life, one day at a time. I hope your sobriety means as much to you as mine means to me. God has been very good, and I thank you all for letting me come to Nashville.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.